Hey, welcome to Win the Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and welcome in. Here we are with the second of my conversations with Meg Cowan. Meg is a sex and relationships coach who works a lot with people in the arena of processing through purity culture and deconstruction, and the way in which that may have impacted on their relationships, and in particular, maybe a relationship with a partner, impacted on sex and sexuality and understandings and experiences of those things. So in our last conversation, we talked a lot about some of the negative consequences of purity culture. And what we do in this conversation is we talk much more about how to kind of move forward. What does healthy sexuality and sex start to look like? Uh, If you've experienced some of the negative consequences and impact of purity culture, Uh, What are some things we can do to move forward and find uh, more health uh, and wholeness and well-being in these arenas of our lives? How do we reframe sexual ethics? How do we uh, find um, agency? How you know all sorts of questions that we explore here, and uh, and I and I know you're going to find this to be a meaningful and helpful conversation. I'm sure you will. Perhaps not just for you, but perhaps for someone you know. Because uh, these things can be tricky to talk about sometimes, especially within religious spaces. And so sometimes just giving someone something to listen to instead of having to try and talk about it yourself can also be helpful. So um, that's what we talk about today. You can find uh, Meg on Instagram, Meg C. Cowan. Uh, look her up there. You can also go to megcowan.com. She has a shame-free sex course that is available uh, via her website there and a bunch of other stuff you'll find that she's doing. So uh, that's Meg. In the meantime, uh, if you want to get in touch for any reason, you can do so obviously through social media, through Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, and also you can uh, go to intheshift.com. You can send me a message there, or you can uh, message us feedback at intheshift.com. Uh, as well as that, you may know you can actually support the work of In The Shift and help to keep this whole thing kind of going and sustainable and uh enhance our ability to to make this happen for you. So you can go to patreon.com slash in the shift and you also get access to our online Discord uh, community site for patrons. So uh, that's what's going on there. I don't think I have much else to tell you this time. I feel like this is a very this is a very short preamble, which means we're going to get to the very exciting musical interlude shortly, much earlier than normal. Are you ready? I did hear from someone we had a poll on Instagram a little while ago about whether this music should change or not. Turned out, there's big support to keep it. So we have, some even suggested they do a little dance when it comes on. And given that we talk a bit about somatics and embodiment in the conversation today, perhaps that's a good way to begin. So, wherever you are, this is episode 71 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. So today on In The Shift, back with Meg Cowan, talking again about purity culture. Thanks for joining me again, Meg. So good. Glad to be here. Um, we're going to talk this time. Last time we talked a lot about where purity culture kind of comes from and the big problems that it causes um, for so many people who have um, experienced it. This time we want to focus our conversation really on how do we how do we move forward through this for people who have experienced it. Um, and, you know, we're continuing to hear stories from people. Um, coming through the, the experience of church, very much still immersed in forms of purity culture. So it's still a very current thing for people, as well as for many people, a historic thing. But they're only realizing now, maybe 
two decades later have had such a profound impact on them. Um, so yeah, this is uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too. Um, perhaps as a way of, of opening this up, how do we how do we start to talk about sexuality? That's because it seems like uh, so much of the talk about sex and, and sexuality in the church basically just boils down to um, genital intercourse, essentially, right? The old P into V situation, and um, when you're not allowed to do it, and then when you're allowed to do it, and basically that's that's the kind of sexuality conversation. Isn't that's, that everything you need yeah, to know? Yeah, just yeah, don't do it, and then yes, you can. And then you end up with these sort of weird, uh, you, you know, conversations I know that are happening in like in youth, which is where okay, well, if that's the line, then then the conversation becomes what kind of things can I do that don't cross over the line, and so right. you know, um, yeah. and. <laughs> This is the always used to be like the what was the uh, don't what was the rule don't touch what you haven't got. Oh, um, that was right. one. That I didn't was, hear that. You one. didn't That's hear that one. Right. That, was a, right. that was a catchy one. But then you know some of the some of the lads were like, but I have nipples. You know they were always <laughs> always trying to find a workaround. <laughs> always looking for a loophole. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what what is sexuality? What's going on here for us? If it's not just about if we can see it as more than just that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so sexuality is a really broad concept um, and there's a great model called five circles of sexuality which can help us to understand this. So within those five circles of sexuality, uh, there's intimacy, there's identity, sensuality, health and reproduction and then sexualization. So we'll break some of those down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think to start with, sexuality is even just expanding your view to go, oh, there's more than just what I do with my genitals is a really big revelation sometimes for people. Mm. Um, So, you know, intimacy, it's about are we able to be vulnerable with somebody? You know, can you share your dreams and your fears or can you connect with somebody and how do you... Uh, how do you navigate relationship with somebody? Um, and that's that's very different to uh, if you do something sexual with somebody, you will end up attached to them and with a soul tie. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think a lot of what we were taught through purity culture was, um, you know, we're like two bits of Velcro stuck together or two... Um, Two bits of sticky tape, and if you do that too many times, you'll lose your stickiness. Right. Um, yeah. But actually, there is a there. We do need to get a developing sense of what it means to be able to cultivate intimacy with somebody. Um, uh, you know, soul ties soul ties drive me crazy. The amount of people that contact me and say, "Oh, you know, I, I've had these things happen in my past, and now I just feel like so connected to that person and I can't shake it and and these analogies that we've been taught of sticky tape and stuff. And, you know, soul ties, <laughs> there's no good evidence for them. Um, but, <laughs> but what there is good evidence for is the fact that we can have natural attachment to people. Mm-hmm. Like that's a thing that happens. Mm. Um, but when you talk about soul ties, uh, what is the soul? Like the soul that people often define it as the mind, the will and the emotions. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't mystically end up with that disappearing and attached to somebody else. Like actually you're in charge of what happens to your mind, your will and your emotions. And so I just think it's a hilarious conversation, the whole soul thing. But, you know. We used to do this. So there was this course that um, lots of people used to do back in the day. It was called Cleansing Streams, mm-hmm. which is just, Did I mean, it? the title itself is, Did it? is, yeah. is powerful. Um, we used, my streams were cleansed. <laughs> Uh, and one of the things in, in cleansing streams uh, was that you were all, everybody had to go up to, for sort of prayer to get 
exercised basically from ev- right. from everything under the sun. Um, and one of the things was soul ties. I remember that. It was, and I remember sitting there. I'd never been in a relationship, you know, in my life. So I was just like, I don't really. Ah, oh, maybe I have got some soul ties, even though I've never been in a relationship. Oh, I probably. And then I was sitting there and trying to think about, you know, any anyone I'd ever had thoughts or feelings towards. So then I ended up with this big list of all these people, and then I had to go up and have them all broken over my life. Um, and I hadn't even had as much as a, you know, a, a handhold with, oh, any, with any of them. Well, this is the thing about soul ties. I know we've got other stuff to talk about, yeah, but yeah, no, soul sorry. ties, man. It, like, how do you get one? Like, where is the line? Is it a thought? Um, is it a sexual experience? Well, is, is it kissing or is it genital contact? Like, like, where is the line? Is it only PNV intercourse? Like, mm. um, so yeah, I, just, I think soul ties are hilarious, but there is a. <laughs> There is a very real part of our sexuality that is about intimacy, that is about connection. Mm-hmm. It is about, you know, how have we developed um, that ability to be vulnerable and to share um, our lives and communicate with other people that we might be in relationship with. So, And it seems like this idea of, well, I, I know that even like theologically, when we come to talk about sexuality, again, moving well beyond the kind of theologically what is the allowed or not allowed thing, which is such a boring conversation um, in many, many respects, uh, at least, you know, theologically. But but I think about like even the way in which we can talk about sexuality and desire and intimacy and connectedness and that actually we're all like sexual beings in that sense, regardless of whether we are mm. in a sexual partnership with someone or a relationship with someone or not. Yeah. like Because it's about so much more that is fundamental to like our humanness than yeah. than the actual particular kind of act that may or may not be done between people. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, intimacy is definitely an important part of our sexuality, but Mm -hmm. that was often where the conversation stopped with purity culture. It was about you should only be intimate with this one person when you're married. Um, But actually it goes a lot further. So we've got um, questions of identity, and this is where um, the intersection for the LGBT plus community becomes uh, like... How do I view myself? How do I um, understand myself and my uh, male, female, non-binary, you mm. know, position in the world? Um, how do I understand gender roles of what's expected of masculine and feminine? Mm. Um, what if I'm intersex? What if I'm non-binary? Like all of these things, these are really big conversations. Purity culture only gave us the very heteronormative Male, female, you fit in these boxes, that's it. Um, And if you stuff it up, you're impure. Right, right. Which is... Yeah. And again, the thing I talked about, I think, way back in a long time ago, about the idea of purity itself, right, is it's such a binary term Mm. because you can't be like a bit pure or a bit... You're either kind of pure or you aren't, you know? And so you, once you've ruined it, you feel like you've ruined it forever in that sense. And that's that's big... um, that's big consequence. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, massive. So, yeah, thinking about then, okay, how does this kind of open us up to to healthier ways of thinking about ourselves and about our sexuality and stuff? And even, uh, you know, one of the things that came up in our last conversation is the kind of power dynamic stuff that happens mm. um, and lots of the um, reflections that even I've heard from people, especially this year, are coming out as, you know, like, so for people who, particularly women in in, in relationships who feel like, they're essentially they were taught to have no agency. Yeah. Um, and, and and that flows into that's in a lot of domains of life, but then in, in relationships and in particular in relation to sex as well and stuff like that. Like so how do we 
how do we move away from that and how to you know how do women perhaps in that space help you know find find some ways to find their agency again yeah yeah well I think understanding that the gender roles that you've been presented with that there is so much more outside of what you're presented with you know um if you if you are a a bossy sort of woman, and I hate the term bossy, but you know, if you're outspoken or if you're more creative and you don't fit the traditional Christian wife and mother kind of box, um, that's okay. And exploring what it looks like to exercise all of who you are, I think is a really, really important part of claiming, reclaiming your agency. Mm. Um, and, you know, this I think it's good to note here as well that this is, This is important work and healing work that you can do whether you are partnered with somebody or whether you're not. You know, single people should be, could be, can be doing this work now. Mm. Um, This is not, and this is, again, one of the things of purity culture that we were taught, that your sexuality is kind of unlocked once you meet that that magical person Mm. that's going to be your spouse one day. But actually, this work of understanding this, how we have agency, what are these gender roles, what all these things, this is work you can do. Um, while you're not partnered. So how do we reclaim agency? I think we start with exploring what do I like? Mm-hmm. Who who do I want to be in the world? Um, if it was not conditioned by the things that I've been taught, mm. um, you know, agency looks really different for different people. Some people wear it on the outside and they change how they dress and that, you know, they like, right, I'm bringing my full expression Mm. to how I show up in the world. Some people, it's conversation that they're having with their spouse or their partner. Um, That's that's more hidden and and not seen. It's, you know, speaking up when something hurts them. Mm. Um, Speaking up when they feel like, actually, that felt good in my body and I'd like to try more of that. Um, just just finding little ways that you can begin to stretch outside of the norms that you've been given and explore what you actually like is a really good place to start. So what about some of the other circles where you, you, you talked about there before? How, how do we keep... Yeah, so there's intimacy and identity. Um, there's sensuality. So how do you actually feel in your own skin? What's your sense of self-esteem? Um, how do you understand and engage with pleasure? And when I say pleasure, I don't mean just sexual pleasure. I mm. mean, like, can you sit down with your cup of coffee and really enjoy how it feels to sit and feel that caffeine hit your body in the morning? You know, mm. that's pleasure. Um, can you play with your kids and embrace the joy and the pleasure of that moment. Uh, There's so many different ways that we can begin to engage with pleasure and sensuality, even down to little things like, what do I love to sleep in and how it feels on my skin? You know, do I love a long, hot shower and how that feels on my body? Mm. These are ways that we can begin to engage with that, which even those things were were pressed down um, in purity culture. Mm. Yeah, because pleasure itself almost has has been seen as a like a bad thing. Well, it's a slippery slope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so then there's health and reproduction as well. So this is the basics, which often I find a lot of clients that I work with, sometimes they they won't even be doing the basics in terms of their own health because of the shame that they feel, maybe even around going to their doctor and talking about anything sex related. So pap smears or um, getting access to something to deal with a condition that they've got going on. Um, Talking about vaginismus or, you know, painful sex 
even just the act of going to a doctor and talking about these things can be really difficult. Um, do you understand if your partner has a sexually transmitted infection, do you understand what you as a partner can do to mitigate those risks or, mm. or manage that? Um, there's so many things within this area that we just often didn't get exposure to. Um, you know, I, I got married and I didn't know how to use a condom because mm. nobody had ever, ever explained that whole process. Um, so really basic things sometimes. But um, I had a, had a friend who took her first pill on the night before her wedding because she thought that would have her covered and didn't realise that actually she needed seven days mm. before she was covered. Um, so basics like that. Um, not surprisingly, she actually had a honeymoon baby. So oh, clearly, right, there you go. clearly there was some, <laughs> some comprehensive sex ed that didn't happen there. Um, we... <laughs> Sometimes there's a lack of it and then sometimes it's just very odd. So part of our pre-marriage course was we had to listen to this um, CD back in the day. Young people won't know what those are probably, you know. But I remember. Anyway, you remember CDs. I do. And <laughs> there was this, they were known throughout the church as the sex tapes. And so it was, was this intended for pleasure? This was, this was for um, couples who were about to get married. And it was the last thing you, you were allowed to like it was the very end of your pre-marriage sex course. Right. You sat down and you listened to this the sex tapes. And it was this old, old American guy explaining <laughs> the uh, mechanics of sex. Well, do you know, my husband got given that CD. Yeah, I did. Right, okay. But I did not. Oh, you didn't? I wasn't given that. He was told that he should listen to it so that he knew right. <laughs> which buttons to push okay, effectively. Or like, look, I don't remember much from the from the from the, the sex tapes, but all I remember was him just saying a lot and then very slowly but very firmly. <laughs> That's the phrase that sticks in my mind. And has that served you well, Michael? <laughs> is the question. <laughs> oh look, like my issues are a whole other podcast. Um, <laughs> so okay, so those those five circles. Uh, yeah, and so then no, sexualization so, yes, is the final one. one. So yeah. sexualization is often kind of the shadow part, but um, on one end of the scale, it can be flirting, um, and at the other end, it can be sexual exploitation. So, but it's also our understanding of that through media and and how are um, sexual ideas presented? How do we engage with those, some of those sexual ideas? So, uh, yeah. So you see, so these five. So say them all again. So intimacy, yeah. identity, sensuality, health and reproduction, and then sexualization. So these fill out a much broader, wider view of what it is to even talk about our sexuality. Yeah. Yeah, right. Which gives us much more scope to actually go, okay, what what is this arena of my life actually involve and and how can I learn and grow and change and heal? Yeah, yeah. And and you might go through that list and go, oh, well, I feel pretty confident in this one, but wow, I don't know anything about this. And mm. so I want to explore that. And even that can be helpful to reclaim your agency. Go, okay, what what are the where are the gaps in my knowledge? What can I do to um increase my my awareness in this area? Mm. Awesome. And one of the questions that comes up a lot for people, especially in the deconstructing space, is or or people who are, I mean, they might not even use that word. They're in the Christian faith space, but they have come now to see that maybe purity culture has got some problems. Um, but then they don't know what to kind of do with, do with their kind of sexual ethic. Like, what, how, do, how, do we, um, how do we figure out what is 
healthy and unhealthy um, ways of moving forward and the ethical kind of framework that we could move forward with. I used to be told it was exactly like this. Basically, no thoughts, pleasure or desire until until marriage and now all of the thoughts, pleasure and desire, um, especially if the man wants it, you know. Um, but if if we're going to, um, you know, find ways instead of affirming kind of our sexuality um, really at all stages of, you know, of our life because it's about our connectedness and our bodies and, our, and, and all of that. Do you have any thoughts on how we go about rebuilding a, a healthier sexual ethic that that doesn't just then necessarily say sex doesn't matter, for example, which what, if someone, like, we don't have to set rules here for how people want to think about it and, and, and people are kind of free in many respects to, to come to their own conclusions about all of that. But do you have some thoughts for yourself about how you, how you navigate kind of a, a new sexual ethic? Yeah, so a new sexual ethic, um, we, like you said, we've been given this, don't do it, then you can, um, and that's pretty much the rules, yeah. right? Um, but and and sh- straight, straight with the marriage, basically. Yeah. That's, the, that's yeah. the rules, right? So <laughs> firstly, that's leaving out a whole section of society, mm-hmm. um, which is not cool. But so how do we, if we're not going to use that black and white binary of how do we engage with um being ethical in the, you know, the management of our sexuality. Um, there's a, a few really good things to look at. One is how do I like to communicate? How do I like to be communicated to? And then what are the cues of my body? How do I notice how my body communicates? So so taking a bigger view of um some of those gray areas that you might find yourself in sexually. So how am I communicating to a partner if something is a yes or if something is a no, Mm. or if it's somewhere in between and I'm, you know, in that space where I'm trying to figure that out. Uh, And sometimes that can be as simple as, well, actually, I don't like to have those conversations about sex right in the moment. I need to feel safer. I Mm. need to, you know, can we sit in the lounge and have those conversations? Or, you know, there's a whole whole lot that comes into communication there. Um, and with that as well comes our understanding of consent. So how do you feel about consent? How do you recognise when a partner that you're with is consenting or not? Is this enthusiastic consent? Yeah. Mm, they're not saying anything. Do I take that as a directive that I can go ahead? And, you know, consent applies in marriage as well as outside of yeah. marriage. So mm. that's that's a huge important conversation. Consent still needs to be looked for and found even within a marriage. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's basically no no talk of, I mean, consent I don't think is a conversation because essentially, in, in purity culture, because essentially the assumption is no one should even be asking that question because they're not married. And then no one should be asking that question because why would you need to talk about consent in a marriage? Yeah, consent is... Consent is a very, very important part of this conversation. How do we understand when somebody is saying yes or no to us, not just with their language, but with the cues of their body? Mm. How is that person communicating with us? Um, So that's really massive. And then as we're building out this new sexual ethic and we're creating this new framework of how we're going to engage with our sexuality, we can also draw from our experiences that we've had. So what experiences have we had that, were positive or negative? What did we take from those experiences? Why were they positive or negative? What about those would we be comfortable repeating or not repeating and why? And so really examining, um, you know, how you feel about previous experiences that you've had. Uh, And then with that purity culture um, thing going on, like, 
is how I feel about those experiences because I really felt good in my body or I really felt bad in my body or because I was told I should feel bad in my body um, often. Um, It's so interesting as we're having this conversation because in a certain context, um, essentially all that matters is what we think or have come to believe that the Bible says, right? So... um, Sexual ethic is essentially, for many people in the Christian space, shaped by these verses say this, and so that's our sexual ethic. And what strikes me as you're talking, firstly, is just how different these conversations are. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and I'm someone who still believes that, that those kind of traditions have something to, like, that they open up a conversation for us about humanness and meaning and life and, and, and spirituality. But, um, but what, <laughs> what that way of approaching, like, sexual ethics doesn't seem to invite us into it at all is any conversation about our own bodies, what actually is healthy or not, or um, actually helping us to tune into our own experience um, and ask some of those like really important like personal questions about ourselves and, yeah. and what it is that we need, find beneficial and healthy and, and, and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. There's, I mean, people talk about, well, we need to return to a biblical sexual ethic. I'm like, which one would that be? The one where we, um, you know, we condoned rape or the one where we had multiple wives or the one, like, there's just, if you look through the Bible, there's not a consistent, clear, um, this is the right way to do it. People mm. have interpreted various scriptures to, to mean these things, but um yeah, it's a it's a big conversation that is often presented as so black and white. But mm. even if you go and look at it theologically, it's not black yeah, and white. Yeah, totally. You know, there's yeah. so many ins and outs of it. Um, I think as well when we're building our new sexual ethic, what you said about um, taking care of ourselves and our body, that's an important part of building a sexual ethic. Like mm. how do we actually take care? Um, you know, even after care, after sex, what do you need? What does your body need? Um, what what kind of aftercare might you need with a partner? Um, you know, are you checking in with your partner? How was that experience for you? How you feel it? You know, like all of that taking care. Are you taking care when it comes to sexually transmitted infections and all this kind of stuff? It's a whole category that isn't covered by your typical mm. biblical sexual ethic, you know? Um, it also helps us, I think, when, you know, because I think we've got a generation who, and this is a whole other conversation that I don't necessarily want to get into in terms of like porn, but, right. um, and, you know, the ethics of porn and all that, because that's a whole conversation itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but I think what's interesting, I suppose, is that what we're seeing amongst some young people and especially young guys who have been shaped by certain forms of porn mm. is, um, is that kind of is, is that that's not a that's not a better you know that's if purity culture was a mess that's not necessarily offering them something better and we're ending up again with like so these things you're talking about also help us navigate that conversation like that reality yeah. as well because once you start talking about consent and care and and dignity and you know mm-hmm. the way in which we uh, are caring for ourselves and for each other in that space then yeah I, I guess that I see that as being it's only it can only be beneficial. Yeah, and there, I mean, there's a big movement around ethical porn and discussion. And like you said, we won't we won't dive into that rabbit hole. But um, these ethics, whichever part of your sexuality, whichever of those kind of five circles of your sexuality that you're thinking about, these uh, this framing up a new sexual ethic is really important. Um, and 
And also there's the values that you hold. And this is where we can bring in faith tradition potentially if that's a part of our life still. Mm. Um, you know, but but even bigger than just faith or theology, values like, you know, if you value honesty, mm. that's a really important thing to bring into your expression of sexuality mm. with somebody. Mm. Um, if you, you know, if you value adventure, how do you bring that into your sexuality? There's um, there's so many parts of that that we can explore um, and and building a new sexual ethic is it's actually pretty exciting mm. when you start to think about all these different mm. ways that we can explore it. So one of the things I suppose, with, with and maybe it's connected to the real in, inadequacy of the church in this area, among other things. Um, but, you know, we're hearing at the moment a bunch of stories. It seems like, it, you know, especially amongst maybe these larger churches, but I'm sure it's not only, that's just where the stories are kind of coming out from at the moment. But I, but I think this is an issue in kind of Christian culture, are these stories of, of people revealing or, or coming forward with maybe with stories of sexual assault or, or abuse or something like that, that that may have taken place in the church or in, in someone's life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the response they're getting from, from the people who are there to apparently care for them, to lead them, to pastor them, um, is, um, I think I used the word in our last conversation, problematic, but the, again, <laughs> way too weak a word, right? It's, 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 we need um, a stronger word. It's then. desperately sad, right? Yeah. In terms of, and, yeah. it's, and, it's, and it's causing a lot of harm layered on harm. Um, I'm curious as to whether you have any thoughts as to why the church seems so bad at, at, um, at helping people navigate this and in fact yeah. seems to make things worse. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because when violence strikes a home of a deeply religious woman, they actually are more vulnerable. Um, and that's that's because of a, a few different things. Um, like they're more likely to believe that their abusive partner can and will change because, you know, we're all works in progress, mm, we're being mm. refined, that sort of thing. Um there's the issue of soul ties again. Come back to soul mm. ties. Well, I'm attached to this person. I'm bonded to them. I'm connected to them. So even though this behaviour is, and we're talking about within marriage here, but um, obviously a lot of these things can apply um, if abuse has occurred mm. outside of marriage as well. Um, but particularly within marriage, it's so, or partnership, we see it so dangerous. Also because pastors are often not, or leaders in the church are often not skilled or equipped to recognise those signs of abuse. Someone might come to them and say, this has happened, and they might misread that situation. Mm-hmm. They may not fully understand that situation, or they don't know where to direct that person to get help. Um, and... So there's very realistic concerns for women speaking up about abusive situations that actually pastors and members of those religious communities that they're a part of might actually undermine their efforts to get out or to Mm. get away from the abuse or to deal with the abuse um, because they're going to encourage patience and faith and, you know, Mm. all these things um, to overcome the abuse. So... Yeah, statistically, women who speak out about abuse are disappointed by the response of a religious leader mm. when they when they call out for help. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's sad. It's yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and you know, it's yet another arena in which I suppose we're seeing the how ill-equipped many pastors and leaders, sadly, just 
I know pastoring is a hard job, you know, mm. I know that, but um, just how ill-equipped and, you know, because we're seeing similar stuff in, in arenas of mental health and so on, just that instead of being communities of care and support, um, and, and it, it has become kind of the opposite. It's become layering on of, of harm um, and it's, that's a problem that ha- it has to, has to change. You know? mm. I mean, there's no other way to say it. And I think especially when it comes to sexual abuse, the, the issue that we see is that these pastors and leaders, they have their own sexual shame to mm. navigate. Mm. And they're also often a product of this system yeah. and this, this thinking around sexuality. Um, so if you haven't, it's like with parenting as well, if you haven't dealt to the shame triggers in you, how are you supposed to lead or guide or help somebody mm. else through their experience? Yeah, yeah, mm. totally. Yeah, that's so important. Um, yes, okay. Um, so how... How do we heal? If we are, you know, if, if we are people who have maybe come through purity culture and we resonate with some of the things we've been talking about um, here and some of the things we, we talked about in our last conversation, in terms of the kind of impact that the purity culture, culture might have had on us, how do, how do we heal? How do we move forward? Oh, it's really simple. It's oh, this three-step three process. I no. knew. Do they all start with the same letter? I hope they do. Uh, oh, hold on. Let me adjust my notes. Um, okay. So healing, obviously, this is a big issue. And, and like I've been saying to you, it's it's hard to make this conversation succinct and, mm. and bring it down and distill it. But um, if I was to, to say, how do we heal? Um, one, we reclaim our agency. We understand that our sexuality belongs to us, um, that our bodies belong to us, and we go down that path of figuring out what does it look like for me to have agency over my own body, over my own decisions. Um, and, And there's different parts of agency, and one is narrative agency. So how do we actually understand our story and make sense of our story? And how do we talk about what's happened to us? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we bring words and language around our experiences? Um, and so we can find agency through that process, through giving words or giving language or having conversations. And maybe that's as simple as talking to a friend or talking to your partner, but beginning to reclaim, this is what happened to me. This is how I felt about it. And this is what I want moving forward. Um, So there's that kind of narrative agency portion, but then there's also embodied agency. So how do I actually move and be in my body in a way that helps me to heal. Mm. Um, and that's where I think that um, somatics are so important. So um, somatics are really around the the way that we experience the feelings that are inside of us, the way that we interpret those things, the way that we move our body, um, how, how do we connect to those feelings and the movement of our body. Um, and so it's really about interception, the understanding of the feelings inside of us mm. and, and mm. our body's relation to those things. Mm. Okay, yeah, it's interesting to think about the narrative and then the actual embodied because I think um, some of us uh, are able to deal with conceptually, like what's happened to me, understand it. I can see now that that wasn't, you know, great when I can see, you know, we can start to understand the story. But the embodiment thing really interests me, I suppose, because that's where... I, you know, I sometimes, I've, I've sat in like counseling and therapy before and like had a realization about something and I have this amazing epiphany and then I'm like, 
great. <laughs> now I'm, what? Now I'm sweet. No, I'm, I'm like, yeah. no, no I'm, now I'm good. I've had the epiphany. I've, I've had, because I tend to live in my head a bit, you know. Yeah. Right. I've had the realization that'll change everything. And then finding out later that maybe just the epiphany by itself didn't change everything, you know. Um, and actually there's there's more work to do and actually, okay, how does this actually get into my embodied life? So I'm really interested. So can yeah, we can yeah. we talk a bit more about what that starts to look like for us? In, yeah, in this for arena? sure. And look, I am a big fan of talk therapy and I yeah, same. It's, yeah. it's absolutely um, brilliant, important, yeah. you know, certainly not rubbishing that. Mm. But um, I think that somatics are important because somatics is really about any pra- it's any practice really, it's a, an umbrella term for any practice that uses the mind-body connection to help you survey that internal self and listen to those signals about whether it's pain or discomfort or imbalance. Um, and what's interesting about this is that you can actually, 80% of brain grey matter is modifiable by exercise and movement alone. So you can actually change the way you think by how you move and how you are in your body, which mm. I just find so fascinating. And that's why somatics matter, because it's that marrying up of those connections mm. between the mind and the body. And then, um, you know, not just going head down, but also going body up. We're actually working the two of those things together to see change. Um, the... It's so, so, I mean, I totally geek out on all of this stuff about mm-hmm. the ways that the body stores trauma, the mm. way that the body stores pain um, and the experiences that we have and how that actually affects the cells of our body. Um, and so learning to move in ways that give you new experiences where you can feel safe and you can feel pleasure actually helps to rewire Mm. your brain actually mm. helps to change your patterns of thinking over time um so uh, what's what's really uh, important here i think is that we go slowly right. <laughs> go slowly into the night sweet one um what's that poem um we have to go slowly into this space because if we dive in and we give ourselves um so we say okay I'm going to deal to this purity culture. I'm just going to go out and I'm going to do something wildly outside of my comfort zone. Some people, a small percentage of people that will work for, mm-hmm. it'll be enough to kind of blow the cobwebs out and you're like, hey, I did it. I didn't die. I'm fine. Yeah. But trauma is really about safety. Right. Right. So we want to make sure that in our healing process, we're being really conscious of giving ourselves a sense of safety. So you want to stretch yourself a little bit, but not so far outside of your safety zone Mm -hmm. that your body goes into um, fight or flight again. You know, this is about healing your adrenals, healing your nervous system, you know, getting back to that parasympathetic nervous state where so you can actually do a little bit of that healing that's needed for your body. So go gently as you begin in whatever somatic practice you're engaging, whether, um, yeah, whether the, even movement, you know, like a, I really love yin yoga for um, moving your body through and, and creating more safety and awareness about your body. Uh, but even that, some of those poses, like big hip opening poses and stuff like that, it can, can really feel like a lot in the beginning. So mm. go gently. I feel like... Um them that Western kind of white culture 
has, and there are lots of reasons for this, some of them theological tradition, um, philosophical kind of tradition, um, in particular have like problems with embodiment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, an emphasis on the mind and rationality and, and all of that kind of stuff. And, and I even remember like when I was learning um, Te Reo Māori, uh, the language, and we were doing these songs with all these actions. And it was just so fascinating to me watching the room, myself included, and how mo- almost all of the white folk like me were so uncomfortable just doing like physical actions to songs. Right. Versus everybody else in the room who was like totally fine with it. And I was like, I was just struck, I was kind of curious about it. And I was just aware how um, self-conscious I felt just doing like actions to songs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how aware of, of other people looking at how I'm moving my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously not everybody feels like that. And maybe, you know, part of that is me. Um, and, but, but I also, but I did kind of observe that, that, that sense as well, that, um, that that was going on kind of in the room. There were other guys like me who were like just going red in the face as they were doing this. I'm just hyper aware of the, the fact that their bodies were moving um, in, in ways that might not have been cool or might not have been, um, I don't know, whatever whatever they wanted them to be. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of, yeah, it's, it's super interesting to me to think about this and the kind of movement you're, you're talking about and how that puts us in touch with our own bodies and, a, and ourselves, you know? I think what you're talking about is really interesting when you consider that for a lot of us who came through Pentecostal environments, evangelical environments particularly, we may have had actually quite a, a weirdly embodied sense of yeah. moving our body. Yeah. Like, everybody jump, you know, like um, lift your hands, all that. You yeah. know, there were parts of our experience that were or looked embodied. Mm. Um so I, I find this fascinating yeah. what some people feel comfortable with in in their bodies and what some people don't. Mm. Um, and so as we're looking to heal, it's interesting to explore this, isn't it? Mm. Like what movement feels awkward to me and what movement feels okay? Yeah. And you might want to start with just standing there and just doing some heel lifts, like going up onto your tiptoes and back down again, up and down. You might want to stand and sway left and right and go, oh, okay, how do I feel about this body that I'm in? And that's the interception. That's the mm. becoming aware of the movement of ourselves inside ourselves. Um doing some breath work. Um, Maybe you want to try doing a different type of workout. Maybe you've done a lot of running or cardio and you actually want to go to the gym and try some resistance or, you know, do some sort of strength-based training. Um, These, they don't sound like they're directly connected to healing from purity culture, Mm. but actually they give us a sense of our body and they help us to become aware of what feels good, what doesn't, what do we like, what don't we like, um, and they give us a little bit more information that we can then use to have that embodied agency. And then we can take those things into, um, you know, our sexual experiences that we mm. might have with ourselves or with somebody else. Yeah, cool. That's, yeah, really helpful to start to think about those connections. Are there, other, are there any other particular practices you think might be helpful for people? So if people are thinking, okay, that sounds interesting, that sounds like me, um, or something perhaps I could try. Um, yeah, well, I think it's really good to go back to what what have I liked before? Right. Because remember, we want to create, we want to make sure that there's safety yeah. in our bodies. So a, a really simple way to do that is go, oh, well, I used to quite like dancing when I was a kid. I was maybe terrible at it, but I quite liked it. 
So turn out the lights in your house, clear a, clear a space so you're not going to hit some stuff and just dance. Put on some music that makes you feel a certain way, good or, you know, um, joyful or maybe sad. Maybe you want to explore what it feels like to, to actually let the grief move through mm. your body. Put on music that makes you feel one of those ways that you want to explore and then notice what happens. How do I want to move my body to this kind of music? Um, mm. And, you know, it's great. Do it with the lights out. Nobody has to see. It's just you and your body. It's yeah. great. Um, so so go back to those things that you have enjoyed before and experiment with them. Play with them. Maybe it's going back to a sport that you haven't played for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe if you are partnered, it's going thinking back to a sexual experience that you've had together that you did find pleasurable, maybe even just a little bit pleasurable, and go, oh, that was kind of interesting to me. Can we explore that? Can we play with that? Mm. Um also, I think healing and um, embodiment, uh, when we're talking about sexuality, um, it's really good to go right back to the basics if you're partnered with somebody and go, okay, let's wipe the slate clean of everything we think we know about what our partner likes and doesn't like. Mm-hmm. Let's let's take that off the table and let's you know carve out an hour or two to actually spend time together and go hey, do you like it when I do this? And, and work your way through the different erogenous zones of the body and um, use light touch and use firmer touch and use cold and use heat and, and use different textures and use different tastes and just begin to explore what do we actually like um, and then go back to those things. You go, actually, I did like that. Let's do more of that. Um, so that can be a great way to bring embodiment into the relational mm side of things as well. What's your sense of what happens for people when they start to do this? <laughs> uh, sometimes it's really terrifying and mm-hmm. sometimes it's really freeing. Mm. And sometimes it's both. Right. And sometimes you don't know what it's going to be either. So it's very mixed. Right. Um, very, very mixed. Mm. So that's why I say and I preface all of these things with go slowly. Yeah. Go gently with yourself. And um, I think if we can go in with, a mindset of curiosity that um, this is not good or bad. Mm. This is just all data. This is just all information, you know. I'm learning something about myself, about my partner, about my body, what it likes, what it doesn't like. Um, and if we can if we can begin to give ourselves language and give ourselves experience around that, we can start to lift off some of the shame mm. so that then, you know, there's less judgment and, mm. yeah. Yeah, so helpful. Gosh. Uh, okay. How do we um, how do we heal? Also, I, I guess in the domain of our relationships as well. So where um, our relationships have been also negatively affected by um, maybe aspects of purity culture, alongside the kind of maybe the gender binaries, the the very you know fixed sense of men and women, the power dynamics present so often. Um, how do we, how do we start to move forward in, in our relationships as well with with some healing? Yeah, so um, assuming here that we're talking to people who are partnered, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, obviously uh, there's lots of work that you can still do on this if you are not partnered at the moment, um, but I'm going to speak specifically to people who are partnered. If you are, uh, if you, especially if you've both come out of purity culture or even if one of you has come out of purity culture, a massive road to healing that I see is when people take the pressure off having to have intercourse. (laughs) 
it's just, it's, it's a small thing, but it's really, really powerful to say, let's explore our connection. Like think back to those different circles of sexuality. Like what is our sexuality? Let's take the focus off intercourse and let's actually begin fostering agency and communication and let's do loads of other stuff. And yeah, sure, you might wind up at intercourse at the, at the end or something, but, but you don't have to. Mm. You explore all of the different um, parts of your sexual relationship and expression. Go back to some flirtatious behaviour because actually, honestly, Christian couples so often have skipped this whole bit because suppress, suppress, suppress till you get to the wedding and then you can do it. So anytime flirtatious behavior comes up, anytime arousal comes up, we're so quick to push that down because mm, that's a yeah. slippery slope that leads us. So um, healing and relationship sexually, I think looks like taking that pressure off intercourse um, and injecting some fun into the space. Like, how does this, like, this is supposed to be fun, right? Sex is actually supposed to be fun and pleasurable. Mm. So how do we do that together as a couple? Where it gets really tricky is when we've got um, a difference in thinking about faith and theology and some of those dynamics. Um, you know, one of the first things that kind of unraveled for me and my husband was, oh, sorry, honey, I don't think you're the head of the home. Ooh, that took a long time to say out loud, yeah. how do how are we going to navigate that together as a couple? Mm. Um, and I think there's a, a great statement that we can, can in some way bring up with our partner that lets them know, hey, if this is the case, I love you and I don't want to lose the relationship with you, but I do want to have a conversation about some of these issues. Mm. Um, how can we do that? And go back to some of the sexual ethics stuff, like how do you like to be communicated with? How mm. can you create safety around that communication? Um, so healing in a relationship, I think it's take the pressure off the intercourse, inject some fun, um, but then create safe spaces for those bigger conversations, mm. especially if they're about theology and and some of those gender dynamic things. Create safe spaces for yourself. Um, and all of this I'm saying as well is assuming that you're in a good, healthy relationship that you should actually stay in. Sure. You know, that right. I, I recognise that that is not the mm. case for everybody. Mm. Um, and sometimes even safe relationships are not actually relationships that should necessarily be continued. Mm. So. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm speaking quite specifically when I talk about those things. Yeah, and I think that's I think it's good to acknowledge or help helpful to acknowledge because again, um, the tendency to to assume essentially that uh, unless a relationship is um, violent or and even sometimes if it's violent, it's still said, well, stick it out because that's what the Bible says. Um, you know, it seems like basically violent, violence or, or an affair uh, are basically the two reasons why you're allowed to say something isn't working. Otherwise, mm. um, you, you must just endure. endure. Uh, and so to be able to have those big, important conversations and see where they take you is, you know, is, is really important. And, and that's part of reclaiming your agency, yeah. saying, I may have chosen this relationship once, um, but I get to choose that 
now or not choose it now mm. as an adult knowing what I know now. Mm. I mean, obviously there's loads of things that come into play and in how mm. you make that decision. Yeah. Um, but some people do choose to walk away and some people choose to stay and um, that is all a part of the agency discussion as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot in here, eh? Um, so much. It's, and it's, yeah, this is really good. Um, do you have anything else really you want to say about this whole kind of how, how do we, you know, how do we heal? How do we move through and past purity culture into something more more healthy and flourishing? Um, yeah, is it just anything else I guess you want to say to us? I I guess I want to say this is all great healing work to do for you and it's really important healing work to do um, for yourself as an individual or for your relationship, if you're partnered. This is also really important work to do for children, whether those are your children or children you're in contact with or children that if you're still in some kind of ministry, you might be leading young adults. This conversation is about us and our own healing, but it's also about what is the picture we want to create for the next generations that are coming? Mm. Like, how do we avoid making these same mistakes again? You know, I'm seeing a lot of what I guess I would call purity culture 2.0. Mm. It's your Biebers and, and ones like that who are making chastity um, and waiting till marriage cool again. And now I'm I'm not against people waiting till marriage if they decide that that's what they want to do. Um, but it has to be informed and it has to have a whole lot of other stuff around it if that's the choice that mm. you're going to make, you know. Sure, wait till marriage if you want to, but also let's make sure you've got some comprehensive sex ed. Mm. Um, sure, wait till marriage if you want to, but let's also talk about how to have some really great communication skills so that you can manage intimacy and conflict with a partner and, and build a healthy relationship. Um so this conversation, yes, it's for us and it's for our relationships and that's really good and important. But I, I want to see us have these conversations so that we don't make these same mistakes again. Mm. Um, you know, let's make different mistakes. I'm sure we're making mistakes. Yeah. I'm sure there's stuff that will stuff up. But um, uh, yeah, I guess that's especially if you've got children in your world that you can mm. help to shape the conversation and for it to look differently. Because if you don't, I, I promise you, I'm raising teenagers at the moment, and I promise you, they will push your shame triggers. Mm. That and they bring up conversations that you're like, "Ooh, okay, we're going there. How mm. are we going to deal with that one?" So, um, yeah, that's I guess that's my encouragement is that building out of the sexual ethic is um, it's important for the whole community part of our mm. lives as well. Mm. So good. Thank you so much, Meg. My pleasure. A couple of really good, necessary, helpful conversations. Um, thank you. No worries. Um, yeah, there's so much more to say on this. And I recognize that we've probably opened a can of worms for some people. Mm -hmm. And so, again, go slowly. But thank you for facilitating this conversation. And um, it's important. It's necessary. And I'm so glad it's happened. So. Awesome. Thank you. So that was the second part of my conversation with Meg Carroll and this time talking all about how we move forward and heal and find and reimagine new ways of approaching sex and relationships on the other side of purity culture. Thanks as always to Reese Michelle for his wonderful help every time at making this audio sound listenable to your ears. Until next time.